Are you looking for higher states of consciousness? Yes. Hello, scoreheads. Welcome back to Check the Score. Happy New Year to you, wherever you may be. So what's really cool is that recently I've been getting to talk to all of these composers that I never knew about. And as much as I'd love to like have Thomas Newman and Alan Silvestri and Carter Burwell on this show, on this pod, I, I find it really awesome to discover new composers and there, and there seem to be so many new ones these days, which is exciting because the art form is just being infused with all this incredible, fresh talent. And I get to talk to some of these people and that's awesome. On this episode, I've got a good one for you. And I don't need a theme song because it changes every episode depending on who my guest is. And this time it's Eli Kessler, who in my estimation is like a maverick of modern composition. He's primarily a percussionist who starts from a foundation of experimental jazz and reaches for these sort of outlying areas of improvisatory energies. He has a remarkable feel for atmosphere and tension and space, which he funnels into his live performances and recordings. He's also a cinephile and a lover of scores like me. Kessler speaks the language of someone seduced by the charms of the score, so we speak the same language. Now, Kessler's been a huge fan of film music his whole life, but only recently got into it when his good buddy Daniel O'Patton also known in the music world as One Tricks Point Never, wanted to work some percussion into his score for Uncut Gems. The two of them were friends from back in Boston where Kessler grew up. In fact, he grew up in this city within a city of Boston called Brookline. And he also had family in New York where he spent a lot of time in his youth. So from a cultural standpoint, Kessler's upbringing was about as diverse and rich as you can get. So the experience of contributing to the score for Uncut Gems, which is one of my favorites of recent years, led Kessler to score his first feature film, Scary of 61st, which recently hit select theaters. An offshoot of the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, it's a gritty, grainy, psycho horror thriller that kind of revels in this lewdness found in 70s and early 80s cinema. And there's a cheeky self-awareness of this touchstone, so it doesn't take itself too seriously, which gives it more allowance to devolve into this bizarre place that it goes. It's kind of schlocky and campy, and the New York Times called it lubricious slop, which the filmmakers uh, Dasha Nekrasova, shout out Comfrey, and Madeline Quinn should definitely take as a compliment. I met up with Eli at a studio on the Lower East Side of Manhattan to talk about the scary of 61st and other things like 
What makes the Upper East Side, its setting, so creepy? What makes its filmic counterpart, Eyes Wide Shut, so brilliant? His first experience recording a score with his buddy, Daniel O'Patton. What o tricks! And the place of improvisation in score writing. It's always so cool to talk to these composers because I'm constantly walking away with something new. Like this time when Eli told me the Eurythmics to the original music for the film 1984, which is amazing. So now a composer I wasn't even aware of a few months ago has suddenly been thrust to my attention. In fact, his solo album, Icons, was one of my favorites of the last year. And with his first score for The Scary of 61st, Eli Kessler has added this provocative wrinkle to the tapestry of my film music appreciation. So with no further ado, let's get into it with Eli Kessler. neighborhood in, Bo in Boston? I grew up in Brookline. Brookline. Yeah. And the movie theater that you went to and that kind of the beginning uh -huh. of all of this yeah. fascination with the world that we're talking about. Just what what brought you here? What were some of your early kind of uh, influences and the things that you got excited about that made you want to take, well, take this Well, I, I feel like, I, I mean, I grew up in, I, in retrospect, at the time, you know, you always take... Uh, you always take everyone takes like good periods of time for a given and for granted and of course you know they aren't by a long stretch a given or granted <laughs> and when I grew up I, I felt very very lucky I mean I um, Boston you know it's a it's a provincial place with its own problems but at the same time um, Brookline when I was a kid was like uh, in Coolidge Corner which is like the kind of center of the town it's basically inside of Boston I mean, Brookline is inside of Boston, for starters. It's it's one of the only towns in the country that's, like, wedged inside of a city. Mm -hmm. So you're very lucky growing up there because you can be a part of the city when you want to be. And then you can have, like, a childhood wandering in the woods and being doing that kind of thing if you want. And people go both ways. Some people become city people. Some people become suburban people. And when I was a kid, the center of town was, like, um, it was just, like, there was, you know, five Jewish delis. There was like seven record stores. No, I mean, I counted recently to try to remember. There was three book stores. There was an independent movie theater. And it was just a really rich place you could go. And I, the library had like, you know, this is bef way before like the internet, you know, I would go to the library and take out like really interesting music. And if I wanted them to order something, they would. And I would request them to order things and check stuff out. I was just like a very, I was very into music from a young age. serious musician he played lots of instruments and was just a kind of like a um, like a 
an elder, he would have been like an elder hippie. So it's kind of a great generation where they weren't like swallowed by the kind of corporatization of the 1960s, but they believed in like freedom and kind of like uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. He was like an in politically independent his entire life. He thought that like both parties were a sham. Um, <laughs> and I was kind of encouraged more or less to think this way by him. Um, he was an overly political person, but it was just this general notion of kind of like, you know, art and freedom and uh, that's a part of life. So I grew up listening to all kinds of music, playing all kinds of music with my friends and with my dad. And I slipped into, uh, when I was a little bit older, I met some people that worked at uh, WMBR's, rate, uh, which is MIT's radio station. And um, they just immediately kind of like took me under their wing as a young kid. And I started getting invited to all these like loft shows. And there was, there was a really thriving experimental music scene in Boston when I was a kid that was taking place in all of these like, you know, artist lofts with the kind of things that they don't exist anymore. Um, and I would go to lots of shows, and I was—it it was I really lucky in retrospect because I was like really encouraged because I, I was a quiet kid, but I was able to like, uh, you know, I'd be invited to play. They would see like, oh, he's an interesting guy. Let's have him play this show. And I started getting invited to do gigs, and um, I'd go to tons and tons of movies. And uh, one of my close friends, Generoso, who who really like helped me out a lot as a kid, um, was a a DJ at WMBR at MIT station and got me who um, had uh, basically like free passes to every movie in the city through that and so I would go to tons and tons and tons and tons of movies just like everything you could imagine like seeing like um, you know like really avant-garde European cinema when I was like 17 and just getting really excited by the world of like a film and um, and just and music and just realizing that like you know American culture is just like one part of a way larger picture and so it was just really I just was kind of getting my mind opened up and expanded and it was a really it was a really great time I, I, I'm very grateful to have grown up there even though I was like very ready to leave um, in retrospect I realized it was like wow that that was a really special place at a, at a very special time in history where there was like this openness and uh, Things weren't so fast. It was like easier to, to take stuff in, in a way. So I just, yeah, I just really quickly, I mean, you know, it's funny, I'm, it took me a long time to finally start doing film scores, but I actually feel like um, uh, quite ready for it in the sense that I've done so much like research and, and learning about film since I was a kid, really. And it's like a language that I, I, I love and kind of uh, have great reverence for, you know, and like um, is interest in, you know. Do you remember a couple of the first scores that really caught your ear at a young age? Yeah, like I remember listening to Massive, Massive Attack scores with Juan Kar Wai, um, uh, which I loved. I loved his movies when I was when I first saw them. I was just absolutely blown away. Um, I mean, Clockwork Orange, like I mentioned before, Taxi Driver by uh, uh, Bernard Herrmann is like amongst my favorite scores, if not my favorite. Um, and I used to watch that movie, like, I just loved that movie. I, especially as a young man, I think every, like, um, uh, Schrader really captures the sort of angsty feeling of being like a, 
an enfeebled male in a, in, a, in the world trying to ca- find your way. Uh, yeah. He captures this the the sort of dark spirit of that, and uh, those were huge for me. Um, like I said, the Dawn of the Dead, all the Romero movies. I'm trying to think what else. I mean, just the whole. That, that's a lot. That's a lot. I could <laughs> yeah. keep going, but yeah, if I thought about it some more, but all that kind of stuff, it was like huge for me. It was just a really open, open feeling, and like it took me a while to kind of hone in on any kind of. I was taking so much in that I was like really quiet. I was just like quietly learning because I felt like overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Not, not in a bad way, but just I was like, wow, I felt humbled. thought a lot about it and I just decided more or less to to kind of not scrap but like put away the entire record and start more or less from scratch because it just felt like it was too rich a, a time in a way to not do something new I like the idea from icons came from wandering around the city mm-hmm. and it being completely empty it was amazing Anna and I started kind of going out at like six at night or something seven at night and we we'd like kind of go and get like a, a drink at some bar, like a margarita to go. Like, to go. <laughs> we would we would drink and then we would, I'd bring my camera and my my recording equipment and we'd go out and just wander through the city like till like three or four in the morning. And it was just start, it's just amazing. I mean, for anyone who spent time here, you kind of know the sounds of these areas, like Union Square has a sound, Times Square has a sound, um, has, a, has a feel and it was just, empty. It was really literally empty. There was You'd see maybe one person in the entire, in all of Union Square. Uh, you could hear like an alarm system going off like five blocks away and you could trace it, you know. Um, you could hear bikes. You could hear sort of water flowing into drains, you know. These sounds that are just normally invisible in New York. And I just became really interested in this like kind of phenomenon. I saw it as just like a cultural anomaly that hopefully would will never happen again. And so I started to make a record that was sort of about this, um, like feeling, you know, this kind of like decline, decline of empire. And I, I came up with this sort of theme.
it sounds like you got inspiration from the vacant city streets yeah. Yeah. for icons. Yeah. And, in, and, and I do feel that. Uh, when you think about your inspiration for the Scary 61st score, is it, is it basically just focused in on what you were seeing on the screen and the script and that kind of thing? Or was there external something else that found its way in? Um, I think I think um, there were a lot of themes that ran through the score. Like we, we talked a lot about different filmic references, like in terms of referencing other styles or genres of cinema, but then also just kind of more conceptual ideas about like uh, Christmas and the occult and the Upper East Side um, and uh, Manhattan and all of these different elements that are obviously they're part of the story but they also I have personal associations and a personal experience with a lot of these things in terms of these neighborhoods so all of that absolutely plays into it said some of the influence came from the Upper East Side itself, yeah. the area. As a New Yorker, I can, I can tell you there's always been something kind of cold and removed and yeah. kind of clandestine about that part yeah. of town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything seems to be hidden and, and you know, indoors and yeah. you get a, kind of a weird, uneasy, spooky vibe. Yeah, it's a little, there's something a little off over there. Yeah. Um, I have a like I have an interesting history with this neighborhood because I grew up in Boston, but my whole family are from New York. Like my my parents were born here. I, my aunts and uncles uh, uh, live here. My grandparents lived in this apartment on the Upper East Side that was bought by my great uncle in like 1920. Okay. Um, what street? Uh, it's actually on Park, which sounds a lot fancier than it is. It's a right. beautiful place, right. but. Um, it's not like it's nothing crazy, mm -hmm. but this was a time where if you were like a a, a working a immigrant with like income, you could buy a home, mm -hmm. and so they did. And so then my grandfather and grand grandmother inherited this place. And so when I was a kid, and we used to have like family events and things like this, we'd meet up there. And I remember it's like so. I mean, this is like ridiculous. Probably sounds ridiculous to you, but I remember as like a five, six-year-old thinking that that was kind of like a normal experience for of New York. You know, like yeah. I'd go and we'd go to a deli and have like a nice Jewish lunch, like pastrami and celery soda kind of thing. Yeah. And then we'd go to Central Park and we'd go to like like FAO shorts and I'd like jump around and play with like, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's like massive panda totally. bears or whatever. And I'd be like, this is so cool. Whatever. And then yeah. I was like, mom, can you, and, she, and I looked at the price. I was like, this is absolutely insane. I mean, anyways, whatever. It was a funny, it was a funny thing, but I just remember in retrospect thinking that that's kind of what New York, I was like, wow, that's what New York is like, not really understanding anything no. about it as a kid. Yeah. And even then I remember things just being like very sequestered and closed off. You know what I mean? There's and an like, aloofness. Yeah, there's an aloofness. And, you know, it's one of the only neighborhoods where you have, like... I mean, this is elsewhere, but it's very pronounced there, probably because the buildings are so well-maintained. But there's just gargoyles everywhere. There's just a grandness and a, and a kind of... Um, a feeling of separation between people and the properties. 
this is true not only in the super hyper wealthy areas. This mm-hmm. is also true in in more like because there's obviously all kinds of streets and neighborhoods up there still. You know. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's obviously one of the nicer neighborhoods in the city, but there's a variety of people that live up there. But Especially all, if you go further east. Exactly. But um, there was there's just this. Yeah, it just it just has that feel, and so I I was really trying to channel that in in the score, and getting this feeling of like, um, grand grandiosity and and sort of class, quote unquote, but making it kind of, kind of evil in a way, and like there's just like right under the surface there's like some, something going on, you know, that you don't really understand. I think part of the intrigue for, of, of the Epstein story for people was the fact that it took place up there. Yeah. And, it, and anyone who knows anything about that neighborhood went like, well, of course it took place up there. Sure. You know. <laughs> you know. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's this, there's this decadence, right, up there. Yeah. But that also means that there's stuff going on that nobody wants you to know about. And that 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 the common person is going to be excluded from. Right. And there's a lot of suspicious and corrupt activities taking place. Yeah. That the the kind of fanciness and the prestige of that area kind of covers up. And so, I thought that was nailed in that first in that opening cue. S- cue. Yeah, like the the mate, the scary theme. Yeah, and then. Yeah. It's so clever, the gargoyles, and you know, yeah. if you look up in these beautiful architectural structures and buildings, you see these creatures. Yeah, they're these everywhere. demonic creatures yeah. kind of staring down at you. Yeah, that are like, you know, that are supposed to ward off evil spirits, right. but are really um, protecting, protecting like the quote-unquote good from the bad. You yeah. know, that's what I was thinking about. And in the theme, I, in, in the scary theme, there are these kind of um, bow, these bowed guitar I basically like t- tuned uh, a guitar to open chords and and ran a bow over it and retuned it multiple times and if, if you listen underneath that there's a kind of uh, ar- arpeggio that's going that's like running like a motor rhythm there are these sort of swells of these sort of harmonic dark swells and mm-hmm. I was I was imagining each one of those as being some sort of like gargoyle like spirit so it's kind of the it starts off immediately with these like kind of roars of like of 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 evil undercurrents yeah. uh, <laughs> running throughout the piece
No, yeah, yeah. I totally got yeah. that. And I'm gonna steal one of your chocolates oh, if you don't mind. Please. Yeah. But yeah, this sinister, this sinister kind of quality, something that comes across, I think, in that neighborhood. And I thought that there were two other cues that I was noticing that were right after the first one. It was um, Realtor Creep uh -huh. and New Age for Smudging. Uh -huh. And they initially sound kind of pretty. Yeah. You know? But then there's, to me, to my ears, I heard some notes bending so that it kind of gave it a little bit yeah. of an off-center mm -hmm. kind of like... Uh, discordant yeah atonal is that the right word yeah i guess uh, like i could describe it like that i guess and is yeah. it was that something that you kind of again you're trying to present something that maybe at first seems pretty but then suggests that there's something underneath that is yeah that, to that, be avoided yeah i mean I, I sort of can see like to me some of the, the most exciting and enjoyable parts of the process is actually like just you know kind of talking and um trying to understand what we're trying to do aesthetically with the music you know and um after like watching them the rough cut like many times with dasha and discussing like making our own list separately of what where cues should go and like looking at every you know looking at the some of sophie's the editor's decisions in mm -hmm. terms of cutting and music and everything we kind of came up with we started to kind of conceptualize about ideas about the structure of the of the score in terms of what we wanted to convey musically and i and to me the film takes place on a few different levels like for one there's like kind of i mean there's really like a kind of humor and a horror level in terms of the story and there's also the kind there's also like uh the real world and the dream world and there's kind of truth and conspiracy there's there's all these different kind of uh uh, there's like a multiplicity of layers going on really mm -hmm. and um i wanted the music to always have uh have a, like a kind of uh a wink at all of these at once mm -hmm. so if something has like the realtor cue for instance it's a it's an interesting cue because like they're looking at an apart they're looking for apartments they're 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 um, being shown a place that's like dramatically bigger and nicer than anything they've seen before mm -hmm. and yet there's something just truly bizarre about this realtor in the apartment it's just yeah, weird he's a, weirdo. <laughs> he's, a he's a creep he is. and um and they're kind of like looking around like don't you have a broom yeah they're like nerve <laughs> they're like nervous <laughs> they're like nervously trying to figure out what the fuck is going on with this yeah, guy totally. what what is what is up with him what's yeah. with this apartment yeah why is it so cheap why yeah. does it have this furniture in it etc so i wanted I wanted to convey the sort of like kind of you know the kind of humor of the situation the sort of like anyone who's looked for an apartment knows that feeling of kind of excitement and like misery because it's kind of both those things at once it is um and also that there's just something like sinister going on and they know it from the beginning
I wanted that always to be there, and the score gradually kind of inverts over time. So it's almost like the humor and the lightness, if, if you were to graph it, kind of kind of slowly dissipates, and the this, the the horror and the the fear kind of uh, builds up over the yeah. course of the film. Yeah. But I always want those things to both be there because right. it's not like um, you want the past to be uh, part of the present in the music. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that was a, that was the concept. So absolutely. I, I was always thinking about like um, making something that has the feeling of the scene but hints at what's not there without being... Again, it's like this balancing act because you don't want to do it so much that you're giving away what's going to happen or that you're like telling people how to feel because I think that's really bad. But you're kind of just going, you're kind of going like, hey, you know, there's something creeping in here. And music kind of is able to say that in, mm-hmm. a, in a way that you, you wouldn't necessarily be able to with dialogue or with even with cinematography. Maybe you could achieve some of these effects because it's more abstract you yeah. know, and more interpretive. The, those cues in particular, those beginning cues, the kind of more rambling kind of... yeah. Um, atmospheric kind uh-huh. of ambient cues mm-hmm. kind of like communicated to me that there is something in this space that isn't out front mm-hmm. but it's kind of lur- like a spirit yeah like exactly. spirits yeah and that in, was that was the space that was a, that was a huge theme of yes this, is that is that you have this idea of uh, that there's something in in the wall totally you know yeah that's... and I and I and I was trying and I I really tried to develop a like a, a consistent semiotic language, <laughs> so to speak, in terms of just having certain things coming back at in you know at the beginning, and that's when I said when I said earlier that I, I love the process of kind of discovering the music, and I'm not even talking about like sitting at a piano or sitting in front of a, a set of percussion or a synthesizer or whatever, and like kind of not even talking about music, quote unquote, I'm talking about just like conceptually, like building building a language. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a huge component of the language are these sort of spirits, of these sort of the, this evil force. And it's this amorphous thing. Yeah. And I think part of the story of, of Epstein and of Eyes Wide Shut, which is plays a huge part in this, is really like, uh, you know, a part of this, film in a very big way mm-hmm. i would say um is that like it's just this thing that's so big that you really don't have don't feel like you have any agency over in terms of like that that you know elites and people in power really seem to just do more and more like whatever they want and there's you're basically hopeless against them and i wanted that sense and, and it's unclear as to how much of that is a conspiracy and how much of that is real and like where you draw the line between like actual evil and just sort of opportunism and greed versus like satanism or something or or, or, uh, occultism yeah and so i wanted to get that sort of unknown that that lack that ambiguity in the music i in a very restrained way i hinted i tried to hint at this without using obvious kind of like heavy horror tropes like i I tried intentionally not to i mean when i say horror tropes i mean like um like hyper dissonant strings and like Mm -hmm. tight clusters like these Mm -hmm. sort of things that make you go like that just sort of like sound like a a knife or Mm -hmm. something or Mm -hmm. like a a monster hand popping out of the ground or whatever Mm -hmm. kind of cliche thing you can imagine i was thinking more like um like i want this to be foggy 
a kind of foggy in the shadows. Yeah, like a foggy horror, which to me is actually more scary. Way more for me because you don't know what's what. Yeah, there are these playgrounds that these elite people in the world seem to have. That oh yeah, I mean they are just completely. They are in that eyes wide shut mansion that's way out in whatever you know part of Westchester that was or wherever that was, and you would never know about it ordinarily. Yeah. And there is this really scary aspect of that, which is oh, that yeah. when, when you find yourself in these places or like to somehow intersect paths with these places, yeah. you feel very unsafe. Like you're, yeah. you know, you're just kind of, you've wandered into the wrong part of the woods. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. And you know that your quote unquote little life <laughs> is nothing compared to their, their project of right. control. <laughs> yeah. And like, as in eyes wide shut, mm-hmm. if you if you do happen to find yourself there, yeah, you're not wanted, and you're very quickly they are spotted. It's very. It was something so abruptly impactful and scary about that movie was when Tom Cruise's character is there. Yeah, it's amazing. Even though he's got the mask on, even yeah. though he's got the cloak on, he's they notice that he's not he doesn't belong. Yeah. And that was the scariest part. Yeah, of the movie. that was the scariest part of the movie. You know? And Kubrick, you know, is a master of, of like this silence and the space and yeah. the sort of cleanliness of his cinematography and yeah. every and mu- use of music too, like the Ligeti Ligeti theme. So the you which know. is the Ligeti theme in that? Um it's is that the, the, it's the two note. Oh, that's the music Ristricarta. Yeah. Yeah. So that was correct me if I'm wrong, that's not Dominic Harlan that, that wrote that. It's 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 he, Ligeti. It's Ligeti. Okay. Yeah. Because in the score in the soundtrack it doesn't list him list him as the Are you composer. sure about that? Yeah, because um Alright, check it out. I mean that's the that's he's the performer. He's the performer, and the original piece of music is it's Ligeti. Okay. Um, uh, it's weird that they don't give him credit for that. Yeah, well, you know that's Spotify, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, uh, but that is such a scary fucking piece of music. Yeah, it's a really you know that this is the it's an interesting series because it's a piece it's a group of twelve pieces that Ligeti wrote where he gradually uses one more note than the previous oh. one so so music ristoccardo one is just uh one pitch music ristoccardo two is two pitches and it just built yeah it. and it ends where it moves up and the a third pitch is introduced and then you have ristoccardo three and then at the end you have 12 pitches so wow it's kind of a, it's actually like a quite academic um kind of piece i mean Ligeti's one of the greatest composers of all time if you that's my opinion um i always um, wondered who wrote that and i was yeah. always just Fascinated. Well, by it. Um, he used, it's my favorite part of yeah, like, Kubrick, the movie. Almost. Kubrick wrote. Kubrick used his music in, um, in I believe, The Shining. Or was he in The Shining? Or is it just um, well, 2001? Yeah. yeah in 2001, I know he used uh, he used Ligeti atmospheres. Well, Penderet Penderes or Luxaturna. Luxaturna. Yeah, Penderesky was The Shining, and then and then also the the electronic. Yeah, Wendy Carlos. Wendy Carlos. Or it might have been Walter Carlos then. I don't remember. But anyway, so so like Ligeti is amazing, and you know, like uh, that's a, an incredible use of that piece of music, and it's just brilliant to like imagine it. It's because it's so stark and brutal. There's something so brutal there and unhuman, you know, inhumane about it. 
and sort of mechanical yeah. because it's there's such constraint of these two pitches, you know, um, that it's just startling. It's truly disturbing and shocking. It, very yeah. much so. I, yeah. I, 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 so that is just a magical combination. I just immediately think of those, you know, where Cruz is walking on the street. And then there's somebody on the corner, catty corner, that's maybe following him, you know? And it's just, he, there's, he's not safe. He's, he's not, not safe, safe the though. whole time. And um, just brilliant. And like, so I, that must have been, I, I, I know this was a big touchstone for Dasha, right? And Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Madeline, I mean, right? you know, she, she, yeah, they, they, you know, as they've said, it's kind of, they see the movie as part of the kind of Eyes Wide Shit universe, which mm-hmm. is like an interesting framing because I actually don't know if there's any other movies that you could say are kind of truly in the Eyes Wide Shut universe, but this one definitely kind of exists inside of that space. So yeah. Kind of like elite, uh, elite sort of uh, cult sex practices or whatever. For and like, sure. um, And so this is, so yeah, we talked a lot about that score and um, I, I did a kind of riff on music Ricciarda which you can hear at the very end of the movie, where the, it's called like the letter is the cue. Um, when, uh, it, well, whatever. I'll let people put that together. Okay, so there's a scene that's very much a reference to Eyes Wide Shut. I know exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I and I wrote a cue that was kind of built off of um, two pitches and used a kind of similar. I used a, I layered several acoustic bells to make this kind of like pitch bend, this like stark pitch bend. Yeah. Um, that. You know, kind of for people who really are invested in this kind of thing, we'll we'll spot it. I think, and I also think there's a part of scary, which is like unlike Eyes Wide Shut, which I think is actually kind of a. It is actually a funny movie. Like there's it is a lot very of humor because Kubrick always managed to be funny somehow. I don't know how he did that, but he was just very funny. His film, you know, and and I think uh, Scary Sixty First is in a lot of ways a comedy. It is, and so I think that there's a kind of wink at the audience, like this is, you know, we're being funny, but you know, are we being funny? Kind of thing. I, I remember recently listening to. David Gordon Green talk about how writing comedy and horror is very much the same structure yeah, in a lot of ways. It is. I think they're the most pure and sort of uh, authentic genres in a way because they have like a strict language that they adhere to. Like horror has a syntax, you know. They both are playing off of like archetypes, you know. Like you have like the the haunted house, right? You have like possession. You have like the 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 lonely woman. You know, mm-hmm. you have the sort of uh, arrogant man, mm-hmm. whatever. You can go on and on. You have these archetypes that get kind of, there's some sort of uh, like sort of overarching structure in place when something is so like archetypal and sort of obvious in that way, it can be quite humorous. And that's why people go to like midnight movies yeah. and, and like, you know, eat, eat popcorn and like laugh at horror movies with their friends because they're so fun they can be they very quickly veer into humor when they miss they, they like it's kind of a a, a winning formula in a way because <laughs> yeah. they're either unless you know now this happens less and less because there's truly just not enough and i mean this in um in a complimentary way to these older films there's just not enough like 
bad movies made. And I don't mean like mediocre movies. I mean bad movies. Yeah. And like bad horror movies end up being like really funny. You know, that's just the way it is. They, yeah. They, you know, and because it's absurd. It's absurd, and it's like, and it's just, it's like, it's like embarrassing. There's just something really <laughs> funny about like a director trying to make something scary, and you know, you being able to see like the 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 makeup or like the blood looks ridiculous, or yeah. the acting is just terrible, and you go like, that is so funny, you know? Yeah. And that's a wonderful thing. And now, you know, because of like digital technology and sort of. Uh, the seriousness, pretentiousness of everything. You just don't have stuff that like sucks in that way. No, nah, not really. And, and unless think, it's like deliberate yeah, throwback and then, and then style, it's, and then it's deliberate throwback. And so it's it's yeah. I think I think that there's like a real dialogue between humor and and horror. And yeah. I don't exactly you know know where that starts. It probably goes back forever. You know, ancient Greece for or sure. Something, you know, yeah, but or even farther. But I I um. I definitely we were like absolutely playing off of that, and I think this. I think like you know, one of the things that I found most compelling about Scary of Sixty First is that it's kind of both a, like a New York young adult comedy, in the kind of like Whit Stillman or um, kind of like mumblecore mm-hmm. tradition. This sort of like lighthearted, like kind of young people, attractive people doing their thing in New York. You know. Um, Drinking warm white cloths. Yeah, and yeah, and like partying in their like <laughs> shitty yeah. apartments with yeah. their like kind of young adult ambitions and all this kind of stuff. And then it immediately slips into this other world. For sure. And, I've, and I don't really know another film that does that that I can think of. So I, I was really like, I was really taken by that. Yeah. You know, I was like, yeah. wow, this is great. This is going to be really fun. No, it you is know? really, it makes you it know? very fun. I mean, I think that, yeah. that establishing kind of back and forth between between Addie and, was it Noel, right? Yeah. It really was a welcome tone setter of that relationship and everything kind of, I know another touchstone was Ghost World, right? Yeah. And so there you have that kind of like chippy kind of antagonistic, friendly kind of banter back and forth between the two girls. And it really does, when they do start to divide, it means more because of that initial like kind of funny back and forth that they had you know taking shots at each other and yeah exactly kind of i mean i think i think it has like it has a lot of parallels between that and um not re- like there's a sense of just like kind of a lack of care between the characters <laughs> certainly in the movie and i yeah. think that that coldness kind of hints that something bad is going to happen <laughs> from the beginning yeah there's, because there's, there's no just not a, there's you don't not a trust love. the relationship really. there's no trust and there's yeah. really no friendship and uh, that's yeah, that's you know that can lead to very bad things. It just drops out. <laughs> yeah. When things drop out, they drop out hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Slowly, as you're watching and talking and 
you know, Dosh would come over and Maddie as well sometimes, and we'd like I'd pull out all my like weird percussion and and bow cymbals and play them sounds and play them like I'd show them like a chord on a on a synthesizer or something and pair it with some strange percussion thing and they go like that's amazing I love that that has to be in there we're gonna do that and then that would slowly that slowly kind of took over but you know all of that all of those reference points and conversation is like it's crucial you know otherwise i'm just gonna do what i i feel which is fine too i guess it's good but the more the director knows what they want even if it's in tone the more you have to work off and the more constrained it is and there's almost as far as i can tell like if you listen to that music chris ricarda piece you can by Leggetti, you can't even you couldn't even imagine a more constrained piece except for the the first music Ricardo, which has one note, you know, he's <laughs> one pitch. Um, and wow, what a piece of music, right? And so, like, there's, a, it's interesting to imagine, are there any limits to how much constraint serves creativity? I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I, yeah. don't, I, I don't even know if there is one. Honestly, it's hard to say. Like, that probably is the, the, the best example of that constraint working yeah. in, a, in, a, in a very uh, profound way. Yeah, in, I in mean, it's really, yeah. it's really great, you know? And, like, I think part of the reason is that it's it turned you know it's kind of a it's a theme right, it's a very sp- stark theme but it's nonetheless a theme and um, that's something that you know that differentiates like this score from my music that I make on my own is often in my own music and like I I recently read a great book um, of uh, it's called Morricone Speaks it's like a huge anthology of wow. interviews with Morricone it's a fantastic book I highly recommend it. And he talks about his conversations with directors and like, you know, they talk about the difference between, you know, contemporary music in, in the sort of like concert concert setting versus film music. And they said like one of the huge differences and one that prevents like audiences from accessing like avant-garde new music, quote unquote, you know, whatever you want to call it, is that like composers aren't really so concerned with like themes anymore you know mm. like and this is true with my own music like when i imagine making a, a record or like if i have a commission from an ensemble to write music i'll oftentimes write something that's like really abstract you know mm-hmm. it'll be like a cloud of sounds that kind of like slowly turn into a single pitch and then you know there'll be kind of like percussion underneath it and there's this whole kind of colorful unfolding and like that's to me, that's fascinating, right? But like to to someone who isn't like invested in music in that way, they go like, "Well, where is the music? I don't hear where's the music. thread. Well, where's the music? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And Morricone said that like you know, working with Leone, like you know, Leone would want like simple music that like anyone can understand, right? And so I really thought about a lot about that with the scores, like to try to come up with themes that were like very concrete and simple. Here's the front of the, here's the top of the music, and here's the bottom of the music. Right. And um, I think that is very effective with, with film music because there's also so much. The other aspect that he didn't really touch on is that there's just so much of, and so many other layers of information like, that you're processing as a viewer. Yeah, yeah. That, like, if you want, you know, it, it, even just sonically, right? If you do some, like, really textural thing with all these details and, like, then there's, uh, you know, somebody on a table, like, shuffling papers or somebody walking on the street. All of that is going to have to interplay and intermix somehow and not Definitely. interfere with each other. So um, I don't see losing focus on that, you know. But there's times, too, when, like, you want to get a really, like, in some very stark film, there's a time for just a cloud of kind of sounds, you know. And that can sometimes be the right thing. Well, you know? I will bring up a point made by your good buddy, Daniel 
Mm-hmm. How do you say his last name? Lopatin. That's how Lop- that's how I say it. But okay. if you ask like uh, you know Anna or uh, a Russian, <laughs> they'll have a different way of saying it. But I grew up in Boston, and he did so did Dan. So we, I say Lopatin. Okay, I say all right. I, Lopatin. Lopatin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but he he brought up something interesting that is on the other side of this argument, which is um, he said the Safties favored pace, mood, and texture over melody. Mm-hmm. And that in institutional approaches to scoring, texture is an afterthought. It's yeah, like, well, he's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that um, like the softies are a good example of this. I mean, in, in Uncut Gems, which you know I done on the, I did the you know some that's percussion why I brought it up. The, yeah, yeah. Like there's such an abundance of like I mean the film is just kind of nonstop intensity sonically too. There's like screaming and and just like people fighting, and it's just almost from the beginning. There's voices just you know kind of cutting through the sound field it's just high pitch violent in midtown new york just cars moving by and so when you have all of that that's almost like the top line right like at that point like where if you want music well where does it fit it has to be textural it has to be supportive it has to be rhythmic There's no room for, a theme. for 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 themes, but if you know in some, but um, well, what I do appreciate more about modern cinema, yeah. one of the few things, <laughs> is that there is there does seem to be more of an area now to explore, you know, going against the grain mm-hmm. and maybe Absolutely. just doing something more atmospheric or textural as opposed to something thematic. I mean, I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think in general you have you have just a like a kind of uh, collapsing and reframing of standards across the board. I mean, you could really foresee a future where somebody who has like a large enough uh, following on the internet that they built organically um, just becoming a director because they wanted to, mm-hmm. right? Um, which, you know, on its surface is a kind of horrifying thought that like anyone with like 5 million Instagram followers or whatever, <laughs> or 10 million uh, TikTok followers or whatever could just like make, get, you know, get like $15 million, $20 million to make a movie right. or however much money it is. On the other hand, there's also exceptions to that where the mm-hmm. right person sneaks into the institutional oh, framework yeah. and something magic happens, you know? Yeah. So, and these people grew up in a time of like total deconstruction, right? So you have, basically an entire population of people with no standards in terms of what should happen mm, when they yeah, see a movie, right. which is very liberating and cool. Yeah. And so that's the good thing. You're absolutely right. Is that there's just not an expectation as to what should happen. I mean, people want, people have the same sort of, um, you know, like feeling for when something works and when it doesn't. And like, I don't think that like people have become more sophisticated by any means, but like, I do think that there's an openness, and that's really great. I appreciate you know? that, yeah. and I'm I, I welcome it. You know, yeah. um, whatever breaks through in that way. I do. I'm a bit old school in the sense that I don't want some of the traditional 
uh, formulas of cinema to just fade away into oblivion and not be appreciated yeah. or oh, yeah. followed. That's because there's be... a reason why these things are canon. And absolutely, yeah. Well, they at least need to be understood. If I, you're going to deviate, at least know the know the origin. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and you hear this in a lot of like, I mean, I was lucky enough when to go to a, a conservatory. I, I went to New England Conservatory in in Boston, and, and NEC is the oldest conservatory in the country and it has at least when i went there um like really really exacting uh technical standards to graduate and they really had they hadn't changed their curriculum since like 1940 something when i went there they didn't even have internet when i was there and i'm not that old Um, (laughs) they just didn't have it because they're like why would we need internet you don't need internet to study classical composition which is kind of (laughs) true and so i was held to a really high standard there and i didn't i really kind of was deconstructed and put back together in a lot of ways and I feel really lucky to have been forced to learn a lot of the these standards and um, I rebelled against them thoroughly but um, the ones that I retained I, I feel incredibly grateful for the experience and to be able to listen to a piece of music and kind of understand its components and figure out how it all fits together and uh, how to recreate it if I need to. I had to, yeah, go through that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, and, you have the foundation that yeah. you dive off of, right? Yeah, and, and, it, and, it, and in film in film music, one of the things that I'm finding just to be increasingly exciting about it is that, like, you know, you meet with somebody and you're like, oh, can you do this? I, I really, this scene needs to have this kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, I have, I've never written a piece of music like this before in my life, but I need to, I'm going to learn how to do it. I'm going to have to make it mine in the process and connect to everything else in the score. So there's like a lot of components there and it's like it's incredibly rewarding to kind of like open up that toolkit and find it. fun for me to make these connections mm-hmm. teaspoon two mm-hmm. that cue yeah in in the scary mm-hmm. when noel and the girl are in the courtyard mm-hmm. specifically that's when i heard it right so i'm gonna play you something uh what did i do no no no. i'm gonna play you something <laughs> that i'm gonna play you something i that see you like pulling up the made, steal something made me think no but i don't I'm but this teasing. is what i'm, I'm wondering i'm wondering yeah. if if you were cognizant of this okay. or it's just this something instinctive intuitive that yeah. you know because you yeah. saw a lot of 80s 90s films yeah and maybe it just found its way in so here i'm going to play you something that okay. you may or may not recognize here we go 
you know what movie this is? I actually, I actually don't know what this is, but of course I recognize it. <laughs> what is it? This is Witness. Okay, wow. You know, it's funny because I, um, I saw this movie multiple times with my dad. I saw it with my dad. Yeah, there you go. And really <laughs> do get some of that scary vibe in there. Oh yeah, well that means it's, it's the same, it's that same, uh, same note pattern. It might even be the same key. That's, and so, <laughs> so... Evidence that it found its way into your lexicon of music, right? Like when you're thinking of something like this, maybe somewhere in your past, it, there's something that filters. Yeah, through. And, that, and that's the real stuff, by the way, that filters in, like those sort of emotional experiences. You know, like um, you, you know, you go to a movie with your dad, and you're like, "This is awesome! I'm yeah. so happy!" You know, yeah. it's like the best for me. Some of the best moments in my childhood. You know, me too. Um, and um, of course, I of course I do. I actually don't remember that, but it's very funny. It's a really good call. I mean, it really is the same thing. It's kind of the same thing. <laughs> well, it's not exactly the same. No, but it's close. But it's, it's close. Got the same feeling. The same feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even like uh, another one was. I'm not going to be able to pull up the cue uh, from this movie, but when Addie's kind of in the middle of her meltdown, oh yeah, uh, I really got some lost Thomas Newman Lost Boys like very kind of grating uh, organ going yeah. on. Yeah. Are you talking about um, when she's like uh, freaking out and like rubbing and masturbating yes, and yes, that whole scene? Yeah, yeah totally. Kind I, of a cacophonous organ thing going on that reminded yeah. me of Thomas Newman. Yeah, so. I, I was thinking I wanted because you know it's like this really wild scene, um, and very strange, and I, I was I wanted to get something kind of like grandiose and and like uh, but also cheap and broken because it's like this American girl having this kind of like sexual fugue uh, meltdown. Uh, <laughs> while um, fantasizing about being in some sort of royal ball, you know. I wanted to get this kind of like sweeping romantic vision, but it's like chintzy and out of tune. Yeah. And and uh, like in kind of like gross. that plays with like the romantic in kind of weird ways and kind of shows I mean like like romantic music in terms of like the era of music and I love I love a lot of it but when it when it fails it's actually quite interesting you know <laughs> and um in it because it, it just it just points to um it's such a psychotic fantasy she's having you know she's truly having a psychotic break of some type yes. and I wanted to wanted to convey it while also having like a kind of humor you know and a kind of nostalgia, because that's of course what romance is. It's like 
nostalgia for something that never was, that never will back. be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You know? <laughs> no, that's so fascinating yeah. to describe that because yeah. I didn't think about that at the time, but it was working in that way. Yeah, it was exactly. Affecting me in that way. So yeah. I think hearing you But you know, in terms of like I, I really try um with, with like references and like all of that, um I, I really try to not worry so much about where things come from. Like um Leave yeah. that to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I make no, all these It's amazing weird... you caught that. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> it's really cool and interesting to me. I, of course, have like no... I really don't remember that cue, like, honestly. And, but I did see that movie many times as a kid. It's like very funny. It's just like I got it, but there's like one extra note in that one uh, that's not in mine, but it's like really close. Well, it's very funny. The funny thing is, right, like that scene of that where that plays, and it plays a couple times in the yeah. movie. But where it plays in the beginning, it's called the murder. So it's part. It's when they're in the bathroom at Grand Central, right? And he see, and the kid sees the uh, David right. Glover slit the guy's throat, right? Which I could, I was like so young at the time that I couldn't watch that. Yeah, like, well, I, just, I remember, really scared the shit out of me. Yeah, and I remember just feeling like that child. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Like oh my god, I couldn't even imagine. I know. And, you know, I used to go to Grand Central a lot as a kid. I'm sure, of course, you did. Like I'd be like, you know, you know that feeling of like being away from your parents for a minute for sure the fear of that you know yeah and just and it was so graphic and i just think that like i think the reason why when when i heard teaspoon 2 and i heard that kind of uh structure with the synth it, it brought it right right back to me because that imprinted in me like on me when i saw it when i was young i mean it really had an effect on me so that's why something triggered when i heard teaspoon 2 it's like oh there, it's you know, really there, there it is. Yeah, I mean, all those scores from that period left a big imprint on me, and uh, I kind of was waiting. It's funny because I don't really use that type of sound in my own music. Yeah. And what I found out is that Pablo Lorraine, who was the director, was saying how in discussions with Johnny in the beginning about finding the way into the music mm -hmm. and the, the mm -hmm. tone they wanted, he proposed to him that, w would you allow me to improvise? Like, I'm not going to write stuff all the time. I'm just going to improv some of this. Mm -hmm. And it got into this very interesting, weird world yeah. of like free jazz. Yeah. That it would break off into free jazz and then come back. And <clears throat> I thought that was so fascinating. And Pablo Lorraine said, well, I don't know if that's ever been done in a movie score uh, in that way, but if, you, if you're probably the one who could pull it off. I mean, I think he did that in Phantom Thread too. There was, there was a feeling of that he kind of broke off and improvised yeah. during a cue. 
it seems like this is something that you you would be perfect for because yeah you would, I, would lo- I mean yeah absolutely i mean well first of all like you know there's a history of this that go i mean i'm sure it happened before then but the, the most obvious one is like uh morricone had composers that he worked with in the 60s who got interested in improvisation and they would do these kind of um really interesting concerts they made a lot of music outside of film and that's what they were known for is doing these kind of concerts in in all over europe really where they would you know they would they would all like they none of them really played their instruments particularly well because they were like you know full-time arrangers and composers but they you know grew up playing piano or guitar marconi was a trumpet player Mm -hmm. and they would set up these kind of elaborate setups with like brass instruments and they'd all have these different they'd be scraping the inside of the piano or playing timpanis and they would spontaneously create composition was the idea and I think the notion was that because they were composers they had access to a kind of compositional language that mm-hmm. was unique and they were right actually it does sound not like uh, jazz players or free jazz players it sounds like very careful composers mm-hmm. like making music um, on the spot and Morcone actually used this group on a lot of scores so that like, it has like, been it has been done oh yeah yeah um but he would like you know especially in horror scores like if you hear um you know i don't know like suspiria it's not more conan but it's goblin if you listen to some of the uh, i'm talking about the 77 yeah and like huge sections where it's obvious that they're you know they're they're screaming and there's a guy banging on the drums and yeah, there's a synth that's just kind of wailing, and you know, it's a, they're responding in real time to the to the screen. Yeah, and um, absolutely, that's like a super effective and great way to make us to make uh, music and make, uh-huh. uh, make music, but also to make a score because like there's lots of possibility in terms of like capturing something that's totally uh, novel and interesting. And like, yeah, I mean, improvisation. Like, I have like um, I grew up improvising, yeah. um, and I you know I still do it. Occasionally, though, I, I'm like slightly skeptical of the of the practice and the term in a way because I, I feel like most improvisers, especially the good ones, <laughs> have a, a, a language and a style that they more or less work within. They're just they're, like to me, they're composers really, but under a different name. It's like uh-huh. a different way towards composing, if that makes sense. Like yeah. so if you listen to, um, like you know, if you were to put on a Cecil Taylor record or a Thelonious Monk record. Or Orna Coleman, or Derek Bailey, Evan Parker, any like really famous improviser, I would go boom. I know who that is in two seconds. It wouldn't even take me a second. You could probably go bunk, bunk, and I really? would, yeah, because well, their sound is so identifiable. Yeah. Like, you know, like Orna Coleman has a really specific sound on the saxophone, and he has a specific like language. He uses a certain type of scales. You know, there's actually like a famous story. I don't even know if it's true or not, but um, it's a great story either way. Where like Orna Coleman and Cecil Taylor, they actually like never recorded or made a record together, which is weird because they were like neighbors in New York, and they're the two icons of like early free jazz. Like mm-hmm. these are two schools. You have like the Orna Coleman that's connected to like the blues and more of a kind of like idiomatic jazz language that he took to the moon and did all sorts of things with. And then you have Cecil Taylor that was like dissonant, sort of like. Um, you know, angular kind of playing that's also connected to jazz, of course, but it's it's goes it's way less kind of obviously melodic, and you know they were they were scheduled to play a collaborative concert and they went to a rehearsal, and they played and like they played for like a couple minutes and they said like listen you can't use tritones. Werner uh, Coleman said this to Cecil Taylor, uh-huh. and Cecil was like, well you use too many perfect fourths and fifths, 
and they said like, okay, this isn't going to work. We just have different languages because they just it do, their languages are totally incongruous. And they right. could have done something. It would have been interesting to hear them playing over each other, but it would have been like a collage. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the yeah, point yeah. is, is that like my the reason I love that story is because the point illustrates what I'm saying perfectly. That th- these are these people have the great improvisers have musical languages. They have syntax. They have vocabulary. They have vision. They have aesthetic styles and standards. All these things that a composer has, right? But they just don't. They just don't like sit there in front of a huge piece of paper or in front of a computer and like sketch things out. They work right. in real time with writing songs and creating ways to improvise, right? Right. So um, I am like slightly skeptical of the term improvisation because I just I feel like um, if you put me, you know, if you if some if I worked with a director and they were like, I want you to make a improvised score on the just with drums, just drums to screen, I would of course do it, but like it's gonna sound like it would have a specific language, you know. And I, I totally would, I would play off of my way. Of, I would start with my way of playing. Then, of course, if they were like, oh, yeah, I want you to do this kind of thing here, I could do that. But it's not like it's not like you start it's not like improvisers start from zero and composers start from right no i hear you it's like kind of the same thing there is language and form to the improvisation yeah to the to the degree that you can actually identify who's improvising because oh yeah i mean if again like if they're if they've really developed it yeah yeah. like it's different with classical musicians i actually really like the way classical musicians improvise because they often like don't they don't have like they typically don't have any of the jazz idiomatic jazz language in their playing or the idiomatic kind of improvisation language which is like funny to think about but free improvisation has a a language to mm-hmm. it i mean because there's been you know whatever 60 years of people doing it people imitate each other right but it's funny because in theory you could do anything you want you could play any style you could do anything and it would be permissible in theory mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's get, it becomes more and more codified over time educated uh that when i hear johnny greenwood score for spencer i'm not sure even though there's some jazz improv in there i'm not sure i'd be able to say oh that's johnny greenwood doing that Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. unless there's some sort of i mean he seems to be kind of all over the map and maybe the maybe in some of his guitar lines and some of his compositions for radiohead you'd be able to make yeah. that kind of connection if right. you heard some free jazz. Right. I don't think I would be able to. Yeah. But but it just I, you know, it just makes me think like is his language just formed of so many different things that you probably couldn't tell. Well, I, I just think improvisation's a very interesting and kind of complicated space, you know. It's it's similar to um I'm sure uh, I don't have a lot of experience with this, but um, I'm sure actors that improvise um, also kind of end up falling into some of the same patterns. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, so it's it's tricky. It's a kind of like indirection. And it's tricky, I guess, within the context of a film because uh, I think in certain places, like maybe more chaotic spaces, like maybe in Uncut Gems, and yeah. kind of you're keeping that kind of frenetic intensity. Yeah. 
stringing it along throughout the movie there might be more areas for that but if you're if you're truly trying to nail a scene in a certain way that 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 could be hit or miss completely yeah well you know like um specifically with uncut gems like one of the cues i worked on is the opening yeah opening theme and uh we originally had had like very little in the way of percussion and they wanted to add a drive to it the expectation was that i would like bring a kind of natural human energy to this piece you know and uh this kind of freewheeling kind of drumming that was in contrast to the sort of the motor rhythms of the synthesizers mm-hmm. and uh the kind of um you know like the gridded landscape of new york you wanted to have this kind of free like a free like spirit traffic. floating yeah and on some level that that was what the the character was in that movie couple different cues I worked on um, on the opening cue um, they had done like uh, a lot of work on it and they were like kind of continuously working on this cue yeah and well, so uh, long it's so long and it's so important yeah. and it uh, it moves a lot it's really like a little symphony like it goes from um, this total transformation in terms of landscape from like this abstract ethereal space that's almost like inside of a, a stone to New York City with all these characters and so it needed a lot of movement, and they just concluded that it needed to have like acoustic energy to it. That that the synths and the kind of um, electronic elements weren't quite like getting in terms of like yeah upbeatness and visceralness. So um, at that point, uh, it was pretty late in the game for them in terms of like towards the end of the process, and so. Josh uh, Softy was there. Dan was there. There was a lot of people in the studio, kind of trying to hone in on this one piece of music to just kind of like seal the deal and mm-hmm. finish the score. And like to Josh's credit, he's like an incredibly patient and thorough director in terms of his interest in music. Of course, Dan is invested, but like Dan's a composer. I mean, Josh was there. I brought in like literally every piece of percussion I have because I had no idea what we were doing. I just was like, well, I'll bring everything we can choose. And so I brought like, you know, 10 different tambourines, like, <laughs> every shaker I have which makes minute different sounds and we'd go like you'd be like well let's add a shaker here and I'd go like okay well here are the shakers I have like I would say like these one of these ones seem like they work and Josh would be like let's try all of them yeah let's see let's lay out five and do five takes and we'd listen to them and we would he would pick the right one because he has a good ear yeah. you know and but it it was that kind of experimentation and, and kind of like thoroughness of just exploring every possibility so it was like quite meticulous yeah. and um and then also like you know but not meticulous in the sense of like overbearing like it was like when it came to the the drum take uh i think we chose the first take i did because i just i just got i nailed it in terms of the feel it's actually like a really imperfect take mm-hmm. in terms of there's mistakes in it i i think but whatever it, none of that matters you know it's about the feel 
And, yep. and there's so much preciseness. We, we've talked about this earlier. There's so much like an emphasis on like preciseness and like sort of cleanliness in, in the way things are done now. And it's you, you can go to the granular level of perfection, but none of that really matters in the end. And like so many of the great films, pieces of music, there's like a nice like squeak somewhere. Blemish. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it, but it, the feel is there. And that just makes it more real. You know? I something that I thought when you said it squeak that in, in the beginning in the uh, the scary theme, the first theme and scary. There's that little whoop. Oh yeah. Okay, so like where did that come from? Like you was mean the, it, it's like transitioning into the last section. It, it was like uh, it was during the opening credits and we're going through park, we're going yeah. across Park Avenue and seeing all the gargoyles and stuff. And then you know it has that that kind of that terminator thing and it builds up and then but that one part which is my favorite part there's a little whoop like a little wild animal call well there's there's actually like a female voice that runs through a lot of the the score and i there's there's these kind of choir like sounds um that that enter in and out and like we used like several kind of religious kind of hymns that are interlaced throughout the score and um one of my ideas was to have this sort of like this like possessed spirit running through the running through the story i actually pictured this kind of like the possession of of of, of the protagonist just being kind of um swept away more or less and all of a sudden it builds up and you have this voice that just kind of gets swallowed and that's what that was okay so it's actually a female voice that gets like cut off and it, and yet it's just used in that very well in the beginning anyway just that very select one point yeah. which kind of i don't know it's one of my favorite parts too yeah actually i'm, I'm very pleased at that moment yeah it's really cool so yeah. like it was a cutoff of a vocal that you just decided to fit in there at that point. Yeah, I like I you know to be honest, like some of the textural stuff, it's like so hard to, like to remember exactly yeah. how because I just and it, this is I'm sure other people have this experience too, but there, I made like a hundred drafts <laughs> of that cue, yeah. and when I listen back to them, I really can't hear the difference. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. But they're different. They're different. I'm yeah. sure. I'm not like I'm not crazy and over overdoing things. It's just there's like one second that I was working on, and at that point, I wanted there to be this kind of build up and there's like voice and strings and percussion and there's lots of these kind of clouds of instruments and I was I'm riding faders and there you know I think I just pulled it and it just it just worked and that's that's improvisational too right sure where you're like you're working with pre-existing materials but you're improvising their their placement <laughs> yeah, it almost kind of got at this feeling of like abandoned yeah uh, at that moment uh, yeah okay yeah and like there's this ongoing theme throughout the movie of um that that you see in the tarot themes mm -hmm. of, this, of there's these there's these like little pitch cells that um uh the, the tarot is like a pentagram um and dash and i had the idea to have um two three note patterns that form oh cool uh, form a triangle they move in opposite directions and then on the third time you see the tarot they overlap and so you have the lower triangle, upper triangle, right, to make the pentagram, um, and um, that second theme, the, the the second theme is kind of a variation on that same idea. Idea. All right. Where you have like, there's all these little. I just I get into these little like conceptual ideas that add um, depth, you know. And I, I think like um, 
I, I like, like I said, I don't, I, I don't want people to think or be aware of any of this while they're watching the movie. But as, 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 no, no, they wouldn't be. I guarantee you. But I'm just saying, my intention is that if you want to go deeper into the music, it's filled with little, little, little uh, references and little like moments of uh, connection. You know. So the way you developed that music was triangular and then you're overlapping two different triangles at a yeah, certain point. That's so cool. Yeah. That's really... Like these little fun games. And Dasha and I just came up with that watching the movie. We're like, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Yeah, and again, yeah. it's like going back to this idea that they'll get either music or Sicarda. It's a, you, you have... Uh, you have incredible limitation there, right? Yeah. You know, I'm making. I'm going to make a musical triangle, and I'm going to invert it, and then we're going to work them together. And it also connects in a way to how the music ricarda is structured. How you have these little pitch games, where you have an uh, you have um, the the half step in uh, playing around with that in yeah. different ways. And I like I like uh, referencing that piece, the Ligeti piece, in different ways. And that even was another way of, of doing it there. Okay. Let me jump to horror scores that you like and why. I'm going to give you one that really, really stuck out to me, and I want to give it some shine. The Disaster Piece score for It Follows. Do you know this one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I know people like that movie. Have you watched it again recently? I've watched it a few times. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. It's becoming more and more one of my favorite horror films yeah um, and a lot of it has to do with the music yeah the music's really good now. yeah you, you know actually going back it's funny you bring that up because tarantino actually has like a great quote on that movie which i really agree on he said that it's like he said it's almost a great movie but the almost re- a great the reason movie. it's not and okay. i love this is because it breaks its own rules and it's a great theory of horror that horror needs to follow the evil needs to follow uh, the, the film needs to lay out the rules that the evil Follows. abides by. Right. And if it breaks the rules, then it stops being effective. Did he say when it broke? Yeah, it's in the... I mean, I remember because I rewatched it after because I was curious. Okay. And there's that scene, I mean, maybe it happens beforehand, when the, 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 the evil, they start jumping around the pool, right? Do you remember that part? Yes. And they stop following, right? Okay, yeah. And so, like, the great thing about, like, Dawn of the Dead, a movie like this, right... Is the evil the, the 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 zombies like they literally all they do is pace forward? They just uh, and set, and, and, yeah, and, you know. There's that amazing scene where they're just like banging against the wall of the mall, right? right? Or the door of the mall. They're not even like pushing because that's what they do. They're zombies. They're they're living the living dead. Yeah, right. And that's horrifying because like you're, and it follows is amazing when you see the. In the distance, and they're just they're lunging forward. Yeah, and they're following. They don't at the same Ugh, slow pace. It's creepy. But when they start chasing and and taking on a different character, you understand what I mean? Yes, totally, yeah. totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, I I so I rewatched it recently, but did not the whole thing. So I don't think I got to the part that you're talking yeah. about where they they're following in a different way. Maybe he want maybe the director wanted to up the intensity or something yeah i'm but, sure that's what he wanted to do but, but like, again it's it about, breaks the rules it breaks the rules i just like that framing i think it's really clever yeah yeah interesting you know? of course he would point something yeah like well that. yeah if anyone um but no this this cue this cue i thought to begin the movie it not only sets a tone but it's just like so badass too
I just wanted to call that one out because I really, I'm admiring that movie more and more. Yeah, yeah, no, the music, I agree, is like a really strong part of that movie. It's like great, you know, it really nails it. And um, Disaster Piece is pretty badass. And that's a great name too, Disaster Piece. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's like somebody's composing name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> But yeah, like, do you have any that that you either referred to or that are kind of like your go-tos when it comes to mm -hmm. horror? Yeah, I mean, I I love um, all of the Goblin scores, like um, uh, Suspiria um, and uh, Dawn of the Dead are two of my favorites, and um, I like them. I'm really into the like I love Morricone's horror scores, like or you know Giallo scores, like uh, the Cat of Nine Tails um, by Ar Ar Argento. Mm. Um, and um not familiar with that one and then of course like um like the john carpenter scores i think are perfect for what like they just like nail it you know and uh that's like really those are really it i'm not like i'm not the kind of person that has like i actually you know i listen to all kinds of things and i i'll like dive deep into film history and music history but my 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 uh influences are honestly pretty canonical I'm not the kind of like I actually listened to this interview with Paul Auster one time, uh -huh. which I thought was really, um, really, or I was I don't remember where I, I saw it somewhere. And he was talking about his favorite authors, and he was like, they were like, well, you know, I get asked that question, and I always feel somewhat embarrassed because I think people are expecting me to like name some obscure, like German writer or yeah. like Chinese uh, scholar or whatever. But I'm like, um. I like Shakespeare and <laughs> William Faulkner. No, you know? Yeah, you know I, mean, what I mean, and those are the kinds of like I like Bernard Herrmann is like my you know amongst right. my favorite film composers. Yeah, you know? I like Morricone, and um, for scary, I really was, was thinking a lot of the way that Morricone and Goblin in particular like use synthesizers. Um, when I was a kid, I used to have like I had a couple friends. We were all obsessed with those movies, and we would actually like we learned a lot of the Goblin themes. Um, and would like play them and would kind of even we even made some sort of like fake versions of those goblin cues because we were just like obsessed with this kind of zombie mm -hmm. zombie music um and that kind of aesthetic sensibility But then also like um, I really like uh, I really like uh, Kubrick's use of music and like The Shining, mm -hmm. Clockwork Orange. It's not technically a horror movie though; it's like pretty horrific. Odd, uh, this is a little bit of an odd one, um, but like uh, the score to uh, 1984, the movie that was made, the uh, Big Brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah with um, which I think it's like is it John Hurt that was in it? It's an amazing movie. Okay, and the Eurythmics did the score, like the Annie Lennox group. All right, and it's an ama it's a fantastic. Score. I need to revisit that. Oh yeah, that's a really. I mean, you know, watch it when you're like want to be. It's a bit of a downer. That's all right. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. I, um, I like that. But yeah, that, these are the kinds of things that I'm really interested in. Like, yeah, I, I, it's not even necessarily like horror per se. It's like I, I. It's just about like this kind of like the the menacing quality and like David Lynch's music and Angela Baldamenti's music. Is sure. Influence. Oh yeah. 
like in his use of camp and sort of like mm-hmm. cheapness, the cheapness of his scores. Which you embrace. I embrace, yeah, of course, yeah. Because yeah. it, it's, you know, it's very effective. <laughs> it's transportive, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, um, you know, I've, I've bought a lot of the the equipment that was used to, to achieve that sound because you can't fake it <laughs> Right. computers. When you have texture in the background, kind of layers that create kind of a, a curtain, mm-hmm. yeah. How arbitrary is it? Is it just a matter of what's like? How much of it is intentional to the point where you're, you know, you're putting this layer slightly in front of that one and that kind of thing, or you're just kind of throwing things at the wall throwing and seeing? Paint. Yeah. Um, for me personally, and I think this is like a very I think if you ask 10 composers you get like 10 different answers I'm like I'm obsessed with texture and like so much of my music on my my own um, is all about texture Mm -hmm. and so for me I'm like of the kind of school where I will tweak a, a wall of of sound for I could spend a week on that and not not be satisfied you want to get that perfect thing it's like when you look at like a like a Rothko painting or something and there's like painters that just aren't like hurling paint and they it's about that kind of like randomness and then you have something like Rothko that's like layering sheets of colors that are so close to each other that when you stand in front of it the paint literally vibrates off the wall and you feel like dizzy looking at it like I'm more of that school where I'm trying to get achieve like really specific uh physiological and and um kind of emotional effects from the textures so for me i have this is something that i have a lot of experience experimenting with and so at this point when i see a scene if i want to do something textural i'll be really i can be very very specific about it like i could be like i want to have strings like playing this particular like flotando effect or like flutes with a flotando effect or like whatever i'll and then i'll layer it with electronics and i'll build a kind of like wall of of sound that's like really particular but when you have like ten things, yeah, and you reach, a do point. you lose track of where yeah, they? Yeah, of course. I mean, of course. Well, you—that's what always happens. Is yeah. You go like, oh, it just needs that. Oh, it just needs that. And then you go like, what am I doing? And you like erase like almost all of it. I mean, that's for my process. Right. I, I'm always like having to reduce because I get overexcited, and then it's about pulling back. Yeah. Um, sometimes you go like these four things. You're like, oh, that's magic. But you know, you have those days where you're just kind of not. That's not happening. Yeah. But you you end up with these things, and then you get I I you know I'll have them all set up on a mixer, and I can play with the dynamics. And oftentimes, like all my all my music, it's like there's constant movement between the parts. Both I record them very dynamically, but then also after afterwards, I'll often be like, I wish that this sound arched in a little bit, came in a little bit more here. So I'll tweet, I'll bring it up and bring it down, and there's just always an ebb and flow. So you want to get for me, I always want to get this organic naturalistic kind of sound and when you get a naturalistic feel to me that's when it it's the scariest it's like or the most evocative it's like when there's something really in the room with you it's sure. alive and breathing yeah. versus a kind of a synth that's just like 
Right. You know. No, but it does. It feels animated. It has that vibration and that yeah. kind of oscillation. That's what I, I'm. That's my thing. That's what I'm personally drawn. To. And there's a lot of that in this film. Yeah, absolutely. And and so that's why I wondered. Like, I wonder how much. What is going on there? Yeah, and there's. There, you know, obviously there's aspects of like just you know seeing what happens when you put two things together, and oftentimes you you know when you're not when you're doing things that way, you're you end up having to take away. You know, sometimes you go, I want these four sounds, and you just know how they'll sit. Um, but it takes, it has, you know, there's a, like a methodical aspect to it. And then there's just the kind of like creative, creative uh, pro- process of, of trying things and then needing to, uh, you know, forget about it. You know what I mean? Sure. And go like, okay, I've tried enough things. Let's, let's just like, take a walk come back listen to this and see where we're at and oftentimes you'd be like why what was i think why do i have three things doing the same exact part you know there should yeah. just be one just pick one right you know, and, i've encountered that in my my music making yeah that's well. the way it is yeah. it's, it's like you know learning how to make decisions and i think over time too as you get deeper into a film you start this has been my experience uh is you, you know you it's like you're almost like speaking a language it's like the first time you're like you know you're, you're like nervous and you're like inching your way in and then like over time you you eventually you know the characters you know the language you know the the textures and then at that point you're just like riffing you know you're like putting this here you're moving confidently and sometimes a cue that will take would have taken you like uh, four days at the beginning of the process takes you an hour because <laughs> you become accustomed to the environment yeah you know the language you know the material you, you know it's like you have your paints mixed you have yeah. everything on the table and you can just you're riffing you're having fun you know that and that's a lot of the like was scary like i kind of like i sort of like moved around <laughs> sort of like maneuvered myself around a lot of the bigger cues knowing that i needed to like ease myself into the language and then finally you go like all right now I'm, i got it i gotta go for these <laughs> some of these big ones because right. uh, it's gonna they could take time yeah you know and it, it's easier that way because like again you have to establish your your footing you know I think definitely that process of like thinking in this hyper hyper symbolic way about music absolutely is infiltrated and in a good way the way that um, I'm thinking about solo music and like albums and concerts and all of this because it, it's it's the kind of thing you can't really go back from after you open that door it's like you can't really close it especially since I've always been so drawn to film music and some of my favorite music is music for film and so um, now that that door is open it's it's, would be impossible to close it.